Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. And who will arise to rule over the nations? The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, this asset the reading of your word, that our hearts begin to turn. That at the hearing of the revelation of yourself to us, that our hearts begin to soften. Father, that these next short moments that we walk away, different people having seen your face a little clearer. Father, today specifically I pray for that you would give us a heart for the nations. That you give us a heart for those who don't know you. They may know some shadow of you. They may know some resemblance of you. But Father, they don't know you. And Father, give us a heart that they would know you. And so Father, as we study why we should have this heart today. And how we have this heart and and such. I Father, I just pray that you would reveal this clearly to us today. That you would change our hearts. That you would strengthen our passion for your glory. And our zeal for your glory. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so far these uh, past 13 weeks or so we've been in the book of Colossians. And for the first time we are going to take a break from Colossians. Someone earlier to me said to me, uh, Matt, I want my money back. I'm not getting my weekly dose of Colossians. What I should have said was, you have your own Bible. You can read it. Uh, but uh, So we're not going to teach on Colossians this week, although uh, the next week I, I'm excited about where we'll get back to Colossians. But this week, um, in light of us going to Haiti, I really want to uh, talk about missions today. Why do we do missions? Why are we going to... Haiti. And I already kind of let that cat out of the bag a little bit in that we go because proper worship doesn't exist. The worship of the only one worthy of that worship does not, that it's not taking place. That worship is not taking place. So the question that we're going to answer today is why do we do missions? Now before we get going in this, I, I want to kind of give a, a little bit of a disclaimer um, and something to keep your mind on and that is, I'm going to refer a lot today to what we might categorize as international missions or foreign missions and such. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about Haiti and what we're going to do in Haiti and those kind of things. But understand that the application here 
is not just international missions. The application here is for your next door neighbor, the person you sit in a cubicle with next to. So, uh, with that said, the question, why do we do missions? And I want to read to you, this is a fairly lengthy quote, so just follow along with me as, as, I, as I read to you. John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Hmm. Does that surprise anybody? Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. He says worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. Uh, I love his language there. He says the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalms 97.1. He says, let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 67. But worship is also, he goes on to say, the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. I think it's interesting because... I think, well, this, this is a side sermon, okay? I think sometimes most, a lot of us don't offer God, like don't present God, don't proclaim the gospel because we don't cherish the gospel. Okay? So we'll just, I'll let, throw that one out there and let that one fall on some toes and we'll keep going. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never cry out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exult in you, I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Almost there. If the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good, in the affections of the heart, in the priorities of the church, man will be well served and God Man, man will be well served, and God's, God will not be duly honored. Let me read that again. In the pursuit of God's, if the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good and the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will be well served, and God will not be duly honored. He says, I'm not pleading for a diminishing of missions, but for a magnifying of God. When the flame of worship burns With the heat of God's true worth, the light of mission will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come. So where passion for God, that's the end of the quote, where where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare His glory among the nations. And I think that really needs to hit home with us. Where 
the glory of God and the passion for God is not there. Neither will the desire and passion to share Him with others. So why do we do missions? Why are we going to a foreign country? Why will our missions as a church be an ever-growing and evolving ministry? Why has God called us to go beyond the four walls of our homes? Again, this applies to not just foreign missions, but this applies to your next-door neighbor and your relationship with him or her. And the answer is we go because worship does not exist. We go because the worship of God is not there. So what we're saying as we approach this text is what we're saying is that the objective for us in missions is to be used by God to catalyze the worship of God among the nations. Do we see the task that we have? Do you understand that? Our responsibility, our goal is to be used by God to bring about the worship of God. Now, I assume in there, the Holy Spirit working through us and the Holy Spirit working in their hearts, okay? I mean, that's an assumption. But we're talking about our task in missions is not just to tell people about Jesus. It's not just to convert people, but it's to be used by God to bring about the worship of God. That's why Christ, I think, says to make disciples, not just to make converts, not just to convert people, not just to evangelize, but to make disciples. This, this brings about worship as they begin to understand God and, and, and commit their life to Christ and, and then everything that follows. So, where do we get this from? Well, obviously Christ commanded us to make disciples, teaching them all that Christ commanded. Um, but I think what we see here in Romans, in this particular passage, among lots of theological great truth here, I think we see an example of Christ himself carrying out this mission and the reasons for why he carried out this mission of taking the gospel to the world or himself coming to the world. So let's read again Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 8 through 13. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. So let's take a look at this text. So Paul, first of all, starts off with this, op- this basically this opening verb, for I, I tell. And really what's signified here is that Paul is getting ready, uh, what's getting ready to follow is basically a very solemn doctrinal declaration. Paul's getting ready to, to express something that I, th- that I think if you study Romans you see he, he, his kind of two main veins of thought that he's trying to accomplish in Romans, and we don't have time, maybe, maybe one day, considering next after Colossians preaching through Romans, um, which will probably be there until Jesus comes back, but um, that's my only hesitancy. But, so just a snapshot, um, 
is, uh, I think what Paul's getting ready to cover in these few verses is kind of his two big goals in the book of Colossians. And so the declaration summarizes what I'm trying to say is one of the central concerns in the letter of Romans, is what he gets ready to summarize here in these words. And what is that declaration? The declaration that God has fulfilled the promise of the Abrahamic covenant by bringing Gentiles into the people of God through the gospel. So this is what Paul is getting ready to declare, or that's what he has declared in here, that God has fulfilled the promise of the Abrahamic covenant by bringing Gentiles into the people of God through the gospel. Now, before we jump in, just want you to understand Paul's big concern here in writing this to the Romans is that these Gentiles and Jews would get along. I mean, that's a big concern for Paul in here. We're Honestly, we're not going to address that aspect of the text. So I just want to be honest with you guys. That's a big part and a big theme here. But we're not going to have time to, to jump into that part of the text. But it's obvious that what's going on is Paul is talking about this Abrahamic covenant, what God has fulfilled, and how he's done it. And we're going to take a look at the how God has done it in this text. The big point here is why Christ did the mission that he did. So before we jump into the heart of the passage, we need to understand, though, and, and I, I know, I, I don't want to lose you guys here, okay, because I know we're early on, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm really warm, so I don't want to put anybody to sleep here, but we need to talk first about a little bit of technicality in the text, um, what we call syntax. Has anybody ever heard of the word syntax? All right, all right. In the English language, right? Yes, yes. So syntax is not just a, a weird dude that theologians do to try and explain something in God's Word. No, this is, it, it crosses languages. Syntax is the arrangement of words and phrases in order to create well-formed sentences in a language. Now, here's the challenge. When we go to foreign languages, particularly more ancient languages, it gets a little harder to work through the syntax of that. Why did Paul put words here? And why did he arrange his sentences like such? So, with that said, bear with me, because I think it's important for us in order to move forward how we understand Paul's syntax just in verses 8 and 9. So, if you have your Bibles, I want you to just stay right in there on 8 and 9 in these next few moments, because I want to try and break a couple things apart for you. So, we have really two main options when it comes to understanding Paul's syntax in this in the sense so his arrangement of words and phrases so we have a couple options options one is that most of verse eight and the first part of nine we can see them as two parallel assertions or parallel uh, phrases if you will that are dependent on the word for I tell so that's option one. So let's just look at that for a second. So he says, I tell you, or for I tell you, and then the two parallel assertions would be, first one, that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision for the sake of the truth of God in order to confirm the promises to the fathers. That's one assertion. The second one then, and that the Gentiles are glorifying God for the sake of his mercy. That's option one. Does everybody see that? So these two phrases are dependent on 
I tell you. And what's he telling you? He's telling us that Christ has become a servant of circumcision for the sake of the truth of God in order to confirm the promises to the fathers. And secondly, that the Gentiles are glorifying God for the sake of his mercy. Our op- second option is that eight, the second part of 8 to the first part of 9 as two parallel expressions that are dependent on the first part of A. So let's just take a look at that for a second. The first part of A. So I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision for the sake of the truth of God. Pause. Two phrases. In order to confirm the promises made to the fathers and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for the sake of His mercy. This is where I think understanding the context of Romans is a big deal. Because I think, I think the better option for here to understand this, and, what, and this is how we're going to work from today, is option two. So I think the two big themes going on, in, in, and even in that phrase that I read a little bit ago, the two big themes going on in Romans is that God has fulfilled His promise to the Jews, and the priority of the Jews in the presentation of the gospel but then the grafting in of the Gentiles. So these are kind of two big themes. So Paul, Paul, understanding particularly the Old Testament very well, he knows that Christ didn't come and, and we just got rid of the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament was fulfilled. The Old Covenant was fulfilled in Christ. But then there's the Gentiles. And this whole new branches being grafted into the body. So this is important to Paul to keep these two things very central and very focused in his presentation here to the church in Rome. So I think what's best for us to understand is that I say, look back at your, at your verse there at the beginning of A, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show the truthfulness, or to show God's truthfulness in order, so that's the first phrase, and then, the, the two truths here, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Does everybody follow with me on that? So those are the two phrases that are dependent upon, I say that Christ has become a servant of circumcision for the sake of the truth of God. And so for that reason, His promises kept to the, to the Jews, and that the Gentiles might glorify God. So, what has happened is basically Paul is talking about the equality of the Jew and the Gentile, but the priority of the Jew in salvific history. So this is important for us as, as we work through this. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. And that's just one passage showing the importance or the the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile and the priority. So Paul is maintaining commitment to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, while showing the grafting in of you and I, the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew. So Christ comes on mission in this context to bring the mercy of God. 
Let's think about that for just a moment. The mercy of God. When we think about proclaiming the gospel to people who, who need to hear it, do we, ever, do we think that we are bringing mercy to those people? We should. When we think that we need the gospel, we've, we talk often here of that, we need the gospel the moment that we are saved and sealed, but we need the gospel to, for continued living in Christ as Christ works this out through us and we work out our salvation, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2. We still need that, that mercy of God as part of what we need. But the fact is what Christ is bringing is mercy, God's mercy to the earth. Why do you say mercy? Because the payment for our sins is death. Christ brings an alternate option, right? That's mercy. Okay. So Christ brings this mercy. But he brings us first to the Jews, and then he comes to the Gentiles. So before we start breaking down word for word, or not word for word, but kind of section for section here, I need you to see kind of two things. In this text, you're going to see the supremacy of God, the supremacy of God, and the cause of missions in the same verses. The supremacy of God, the prominence of God. We see that in the fact that it declares the glory of God. That's what we mean. The glory of God, the supremacy of God, the prominence of God, the preeminence of God. We've we've talked about that with Christ in Colossians. But then the cause of missions. Why did Christ come? And then that's the model, I think, and the motivation for us as well. I think we see here the first greatest mission, and that is Christ coming to this earth. So, with that said, verse 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. First point, our desire for taking the gospel to the nations correlates to our zeal for the glory of God. Our desire for taking the gospel, you might also say the extent of our desire, you might throw that word in there, for taking the gospel to the nations correlates to our zeal for the glory of God. You will only take the gospel to the nations to the extent to which you are concerned with the glory of God. The extent to which I'm concerned with the glory of God directly relates to my concern that he be glorified among my neighbors, my co-workers, those in foreign countries, those in other states. Do you think Christ was concerned with the glorification of God by the people on this earth? Do you think that was a good concern of Christ? Anybody? It's not a trick question. Yes. Yeah. If he was, he was very concerned about the glory of God on this earth. The whole goal in teaching them all that I have commanded is for the people to worship God. In worshiping God, we're glorifying God. 
the more greatly we're concerned about God being glorified among the nations, the more motivated we will be to go. Um, again, don't be thinking about this just strictly as international missions. I know we're getting ready to go to Haiti, but this is the person next door, the person we work with, we eat lunch with. So, in order to help us better understand, I think, the correlation between the God, taking the gospel of the nations and our zeal for God's glory, let's look at a couple things. Two reasons why Christ humbled himself as a servant and came into this world. Reason number one, Christ came as a servant in order to confirm God's promises. He came as a servant in order to confirm God's promises. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant... To the circumcised, he's referring to the Jews here, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Patriarchs, again, referring to the Jews, the Israelites. So why does Christ come? Why did he come as a servant to the the Jews, I'm sorry? To confirm God's promises. God had made a covenant with the Jews, and there's a matter of priority concerning the Jews. Christ came and validated further God's truthfulness to them. Second reason, Christ came in order that the nations might glorify God. The nations might glorify God. Romans 15 verse 9 says, In order that the Gentiles might glorify God, Christ was on a mission to magnify God. He came to show that God is truthful, God is gracious, He came in the world for God's sake. Jesus came to magnify God's glory. And since God sent Jesus to do all this, I think it's plain that the primary motive of the first great mission, Christ, was God's zeal for the glory of God. Think about that for just a second. In our man-centered gospel, Why did Jesus die on the cross? To save me, right? Man-centered gospel. Why did Christ come and do what he did? Because of God's zeal for his own glory. Why did Christ come? For God to be glorified. That's God's concern for his own glory. Now, you and I are huge benefactors of that, right? I mean, we are blessed beyond measure in the gospel as we glorify God. We're doing what we were meant to do and God created us to do. I mean, all those things just flow from that. But ultimately, God sends Jesus because of his concern and his zeal for his own glory. And I, I didn't prepare to talk on this for just, but just for a moment, why? Why is God just in having zeal for his own glory? Because to have zeal for glory of anything else or for anything else for him to have zeal would not be proper. Like God is ultimately glorious. He is perfect in his glory. He's the only one deserving of the worship of that glory. So if he's not concerned that all of us worship him and glorify him, then what's he concerned about? Think about that for just a moment. What's he concerned about? So God is required to be concerned about our, us glorifying Him or His glory being magnified. Does that make sense? 
I mean, I don't like saying God is required, but it's God is His glory in and of itself, His character, who He is, demands that He be concerned and have zeal for the glory of Himself. Make sense? So God's not, He's got a jealous God. He's jealous in the sense that He's the only one deserving of that worship. There is no close second. It's Him or nothing. You know, uh, you know, there's no fourth place, fifth place, sixth place. It's God and nothing. God's concern for His glory, that He would be glorified. So here, I think, is where we see the supremacy of God in the text, is that Christ comes so the Gentiles might glorify God. Uh, it is God alone, again, who's deserving of His worship. It's God alone who is worthy to be praised. Let's go to Colossians, because I know this is familiar to a lot of us. Let's just see some of this worthy to be praised. We see this in Christ, in verse 15, who is God? Verse 15, it says in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in Him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See the preeminence of Christ. Who's God? The supremacy of Christ. Who's God? Isaiah 40, verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me? Is this God? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is God. See, the supremacy of God. Our desire for taking the gospel to the nations correlates to our zeal for the glory of God. Now, let me just back up for just a second. Some of us don't have zeal for the glory of God. We just don't, maybe we don't understand the glory of God and how important that is and how God has chosen us to glorify Him. I don't have time to explain that, but maybe in your quiet time and study this week, work through, what's it mean? What's the glory of God? Why should we be concerned about that? And it's, it's not a matter of if, God, if we don't glorify God, who will? It's not that God is desperate for us. It's just God's plan is to use us to glorify Himself. So correlates, our desire for taking the gospel nation correlates to our zeal for the glory of God. Second point we see here is that our taking the gospel to the nations is motivated by a servant spirit and a heart of mercy. And a heart of mercy. Christ, now listen to this, Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. For what? Anybody? For what? Look at your text. For His mercy. For His mercy. 
Romans 8, or Romans 15, verse 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Christ was a servant in that He lived His life for the sake of extending mercy to the nations. So Christ comes to extend God's mercy to the nations, and He does this as a servant. Understand the mercy already shown to the world just in the fact of God choosing the Israelites. I mean, understand God's mercy displayed just in choosing a people. I mean, He could have let this all go to hell, right? So He chooses to work through the Israelites. I mean, you see mercy displayed to the Israelites there. But He shows mercy now to the Gentiles. And Jesus, I think, here shows a connection between compassion and mission. So Jesus comes so that the Gentiles might worship God for His mercy. Let's take a look at another passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It's talking about Jesus. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus' compassion came to expression in the call to pray for more missionaries. So Jesus' compassion was later expressed, led to his calling for more people to go. Mercy was the moving force behind missions in the life of Jesus. And we're not, guys, we're not strictly talking, but we're not ruling out mercy as far as mercy ministries, you know, feeding the hungry and those kind of things. That's a part, and that has its place. But we're particularly talking about the mercy of God and providing another way other than hell for those who would believe. That's the primary act of mercy that Christ came. Was Christ concerned with feeding the hungry? Yes. Was he ultimately concerned with, sh- with the gospel and the salvation and reconciliation of the sinners? Yes. Primary. Okay. So at the heart of our mission should be the desire to show God's mercy. And God has shown great mercy in sacrificing his son. And as we share the gospel, we are sharing God's mercy. You might write this down. When we understand the mercy shown to us, we will understand the mercy we proclaim. When we understand the mercy shown to us, we will understand the mercy we proclaim. Again, I think this comes back to we tend to not share the gospel, I think, a lot of us because we don't understand what it is that we're sharing. I'm not talking about being able to articulate the points of the gospel. I'm talking about we don't understand its application in our life. Very well. We need to understand it deeply. What it means for us. What has God done in our hearts, in our lives? What did He do on the cross? And how has that affected us? I mean, some of us can say, to you know, easily, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and and this is the gospel, and you repent and have faith in Him. And I'm saying, 
most of us could probably say that. I'm saying, do you know it in here? That's the question. Do you understand the mercy given to you? Now, obviously, none of us are going to understand it to its fullest extent. That's not possible for us this side of eternity. But some of us understand it so weakly, so infantile, that we, we, can't, we have a hard time sharing it. Again, what precedes the proclamation of God? The worship of those proclaiming. That precedes that. So if our hearts are worshiping God, then it's just, it's just an overflowing. So, you know, someone says to me, hey, I have a hard time sharing my faith. Help me. All right. What's your worship of God look like? What's your study of the Word look like? What's your affection for God look like? How much do you understand the mercy God has shown you? How well do you understand the mission that Christ did in coming to this earth. Because, again, what does Paul tell us in Colossians? Grow in the knowledge of Him. He keeps referring to knowledge. Grow in the knowledge of God, the full assurance of the faith. Grow in the knowledge. Grow in the knowledge. He says like four times in just the first couple chapters. Do you need more zest and gumption to go share the gospel? No. You need more understanding of the gospel. Go share the gospel. Now, let me, let me back up. This doesn't mean you have to have a seminary education to go share the gospel. It's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean you're off the hook until you know enough. It just means I'm not going to tell you to, to go just do it. No, I'm going to tell you to just do it as in just learn God, learn His Word, grow in your knowledge of Him. And then that should come out of that. Should overflow, right? Should overflow. Okay. All right. So we understand the mercy. When we understand the mercy shown to us, we will proclaim the mercy available to all. When we understand this mercy, we will proclaim it. So, First point, our desire for taking the gospel to the nations correlates to our zeal for the glory of God. If we're concerned about the, our, we have zeal for the glory of God, we'll be concerned about taking the gospel to the nations. Number two, our taking the gospel to the nations is motivated by a servant spirit and a heart of mercy. So when we go, our motivation is because we want to serve people like Christ came to serve, and we want to serve them by showing them primarily the mercy of God. Third, zeal for the glory of God worshipped among the nations, and a servant heart of mercy for the nations is the same thing. You're going, whoa, you just blew my mind. I don't get it. Let's, let's talk through this, all right? Because I think this, is, this really sets the tone and stage for us. I think we see this in the wording of verse 9. So, let's read verse 8 again. For I tell you that Christ became a servant, right? To the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for 
His mercy. Is it just so that the Gentiles might glorify God? Is it just that alone? No. That they would glorify God for His mercy. Christ's passion is that the nations might love the glory of God and that the nations might praise the glory of God. But the verse continues on that they would praise Him for His mercy. The motive of mercy and the motive of God's glory are not two different motives. Do you follow me there? It's the glory of God, the mercy of God, the same motive. It's one thing. The glory of God is, well, the next point. Mercy is the pinnacle of God's glory. Or the apex of God's glory, if you want to put that in there too. Mercy is the pinnacle or the apex of God's glory. Now, dude, this, this is rocking stuff, all right? So let's, let's, let's keep kind of thinking through this because I, I know some of you are going, looking at me going, I'm trying, like, I, and, I, and I can hear your guys' hamster wheels are spinning, right? Quick, 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 quick. All right. Uh, we say that about Greg all the time. The hamster wheel. Quick, quick, quick. And, uh, all right. Sorry, picking on Greg. So, God, God is completely. Follow me here, okay? Get each of these statements. God is, don't have to write them down. You'll never get this down, I, and I can't go that slow. God is completely self-sufficient within the Trinity or within himself, right? You guys tracking with me? God is completely self-sufficient. God lacks nothing and wants for nothing. He relies on himself for everything. Even in his accomplishments on this earth as he uses us, the only way we accomplish his task is because he's working through us, right? So he wants for nothing. He relies on nothing except for himself. So the beauty of the situation is that as God's all-sufficiency overflows in the freedom of his mercy to the nations. So God is completely sufficient. He needs Nothing, but what happens is that his mercy overflows out of his self-sufficiency. Right track with me there? All right. So God's glory, his mercy. I'm not saying God's glory and mercy are literally the same things, but when we say we want the nations to glorify God, we want them to glorify God for His mercy. His mercy displayed in the gospel. Alright. So God's self-sufficiency gives occasion to His glory or legitimizes His glory. Does that make sense? So if God wasn't self-sufficient, He wouldn't be glorious. He would be some, some shadow of glory. God's self-sufficient leads to His glory or gives occasion to or legitimizes His glory. In His self-sufficiency, He is merciful towards the nations and He does so freely and it overflows from His all-self-sufficiency. Right? His all-sufficiency. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying. Your words are so hard to come by when we're trying to explain God, right? So, 
Mercy is the grand display of God's glory. We'll leave it at that. So God's mercy flows freely to the nations as the grand display of His glory. So we talk about motivation to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. It is so that the nations would glorify God for His mercy. I wish I had time to preach a whole point on the mercy of God and just what that mercy means, but understand, and maybe we can caption it in just a few words here, or summarize it in a few words, but we're, we're in it, we were, those of us who are saved and followers of Christ, were enemies of God. We were not His friend. We were not just some moral individual. We were enemies of God. We didn't sit on a fence somewhere. God wasn't just okay with us. No, we were enemies of God. And God has chosen in His infinite wisdom and His infinite love and grace and mercy to send mercy to us. So when you understand the extent of that gap between being an enemy and being friends or reconciled to God, you understand that gap, then you understand just how much mercy is displayed in, the, in God's glory. Then you understand just how glorious God is in this display of His mercy. Number four, God's plan has always been that the nations would worship Him. This has always been God's plan. This is what we see, I think, in summary in the rest of Romans chapter 15 here, starting in verse... uh, 9b through 13, it says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you in all, with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul uses in this text, right here, basically four Old Testament quotations. Four different Old Testament quotations. That's interesting, if you look there, just look at the words in there. All the quotations are linked, first of all, by the word Gentiles. We see Gentiles there every time. And then the first three also contain the phrase, praise of God. So you see Paul talking about this God being praised, or as we've talked about, God being worshipped among the nations. Because the Gentiles, again, is who? It's everyone except for the Jews. So it's everyone outside of the Jewish ethnicity, Jewish people. So we see the word Gentiles, we see the word praise of God. So this seems obviously to support the part in verse 9a where, where he's talking about Gentiles glorifying God for His mercy. But then you see in the second quotation of verse 10, where it says in verse 10, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. With His people. Who's with His people? It's the Jews. 
rejoice with his people. Um, this is taken from, you can look this up later, but Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 links the Jews and the Gentiles together in the praise of God. Again, what's Paul doing? Paul is keeping both veins, the priority of the Jews, but now the grafting in of the Gentiles. What's interesting too, if you look at these quotations, Paul cites from all over the place. Verse 9b and 11 are from the writings. Verse 10 is from the law. And verse 12 is from the prophets. I mean, Paul's quoting. He's not just going back to the book of Moses and going, here's three examples of the... No, all over the place. I think Paul is trying to show us that the inclusion of Gentiles with the Jews in the praising of God has always been a part of God's purpose. This is a part of God's plan. Yes, God chose... The Israelites in the Old Testament, that was his people. But his plan has always been to open it up to the Gentiles. It has always been the worshiping of the Gentiles. Or the worshiping of God by the Gentiles. Um, and even available in the Old Testament as well, but not to the extent to which we see God working among the Gentiles in the New Testament. So, it's always been a part of God's plan for the nations to worship him. Always. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't plan B. When we take the worship, when we go because worship doesn't exist, it's because that's always been God's plan. The nations would worship God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So, with that said, I want to speak about us going to Haiti for just a few moments. So what is our objective as we go to Haiti, and again, this applies to you and your neighbor, your co-workers, so on and so forth. Our objective is to catalyze the worship of God in Haiti. However small or however large that might be. Our objective is that the people would worship God. That's our objective. How are we going to accomplish this objective? Are we going to accomplish this objective by building buildings, by... Uh, digging wells by, uh, we could. That, however, is not going to be our plan. Uh, it's interesting, there was a pastor on TV, uh, he was kind of bashing our vein of theology, if you will. And he says that we're only concerned with digging wells and feeding people and not sharing the gospel. And, and I just think, first of all, it was just way out of place to be attacking like that and sowing that kind of discord. Uh, and then secondly, I just think he was way off base. Because <laughs> uh, we're, if we're not sharing the gospel, then what are we doing? It doesn't matter. I mean, we can feed them water for now, and then in a few years, it's unquenchable thirst because we didn't share the gospel. But our objective in Haiti is not to, to go build buildings, and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Although some of you guys, I want to encourage you to read a couple of the articles that I've sent out from the Gospel Coalition about how short-term missions can really hurt. Because they, and when they're done ineffectively, and what happens a lot of times in short-term missions is we go in, and everybody wants to talk about we built this building, or we dug this well, and those are the things that look great and 
And but what happens is oftentimes, not every case, but oftentimes that starts to create a dependency on that culture, on, on us. And that's not healthy. I mean, our, our goal is not to just go share Jesus no matter what we, like, it doesn't matter what we do as long as we get to share Jesus. No, that's not right. The ends never justify the means. So we, don't, we, we can't say, well, at least we get to share the gospel, so it doesn't matter if we create dependency on them. That doesn't, then how do we fit in feeding the least of these and, and teaching them and, and helping them to live better all around lives? I mean, how do we work that in? If we're not concerned about that, and they're concerned about their economics, if you will, their, their livelihoods, not creating dependency just so that we can share them the gospel. No, we should be concerned about the whole picture. Um, so again, not that building buildings and wells and stuff's wrong. I think there's just better ways to go about it than the great white hope coming in and doing this stuff. So what is our objective in Haiti? Our objective in Haiti is to strengthen the current churches that are there, how are we going to do this? Training them, teaching them so that they might have a greater understanding and knowledge of the full assurance of the faith. That's the greatest thing that we can do for Haiti is to strengthen their churches and help plant new healthy churches. That's the greatest thing that we can do. If we go down there and do nothing else but we do that, it will be worth our time there. Like, let me give you an example. Like, where we're going to be going in Haiti and doing some teaching, they don't they really don't even have a written language. So the idea of us being able to take books and stuff and translate them is it's really hard. But even that, we can do some of that, not necessarily you and I, but we can help support that. But even in that, it's, it takes time. And time to translate books. and Because you have to have someone down there and have them who's educated enough in the English language to be able to translate this stuff. And so, with all that said, one of the most valuable things that we can do is go down there and teach them these things. They can take notes. We can teach them the Word of God. One of the things we're going to be teaching on is humanity and sin. That's a couple of things that Rusty and I will be teaching on, and then how to, how to treat each other in the family of God, and, and those kind of things. We'll do some lady teaching on biblical femininity, and those kind of things. And you know, that's some of the greatest things that we can do for Haiti. Not build them a building. We can help them, showing them God, how does God transform the culture, right? So, strengthening churches. What else will we do? We will do some taking care of the least of these. We'll do this, but we'll do this strategically through local churches. Like, our, our philosophy here as, as we go on this mission is local church to local church missions. We don't want to ever just jump into a culture, do a few nice things in the name of Jesus, and then jump out. Who's there to follow up? Who's there to capitalize on what God did in that week or two weeks or three weeks? And, and I say specifically local church to local church because it's not local church to parachurch ministry. They have their position their place. But it's local church, local. We want to be involved with local churches, doing everything through local churches. That's how God has chosen to work in our day primarily is through local churches. So we're going to work through local churches. So anything that we do, feeding, handing out things, any of that kind of stuff's done through local churches. Let me give you another example. One of the ways that we can bring about the worship of God in Haiti is Haitians will drop anything they're doing to listen to an American. They'll drop anything they're doing 
to, and give them an ear. So you know what that, you know what we should use that opportunity for? To share Jesus. So first of all, that's great, and that's an opportunity that we have, share Christ. Now how are we going to do that? As we go door to door and share the gospel in Haiti, we're going to go, for the most part, there may be a couple exceptions to this, but for the most part, with a local church pastor, with a local Haitian pastor. We'll go, we'll probably go in groups of two or three with us, and then him. So you know what, when that person, let's say they accept Christ, or maybe a door begins to open, then when we leave in a week, there's a local church pastor there to follow up. That's awesome. And that's what we want to be a part of. We will, again though, in strategic ways, there is a clear command to care for the least of these. But that doesn't just mean no holds barred, do it unwisely. There are wise ways to do that. And let me just give you an example. You know, one of the practical reasons why we don't want to build buildings in Haiti is because our plane tickets for 12 people to go to Haiti was $10,122 for 12 people to go to Haiti. It's a lot of money. So then trip costs on top of that, so let's say 17000 18000 for 12 people to go to Haiti. We're going to spend 18000 plus materials to build a building. We could pay a Haitian, Haitians to build literally 10 to 15 buildings for the same price. And it puts money in their culture and teaches them how to earn money because they don't have that kind of culture where you earn money and then you find you know, stability and you pay for your family, those kind of things. They don't have that kind of culture there. It's a fourth world country. So we would do them much, much better by paying Haitians there to come lay brick and mortar and such. And then we shared the gospel with them in the process. See the difference? On mission. We go because worship does not exist. Let me leave you with this truth. A Christ-like missionary will have a zeal for two things. The glory of God among the nations and a heart of mercy for the nations. If we separate these things, follow me, I'm almost done. If we separate these things, if we take out the glory of God and it's just about mercy, then we end up with a man-centered gospel and a focus on human improvement with no eternal significance. On the other hand, if our desire is for the glory of God, or sorry, if in our desire for the glory of God we are not delighting and proclaiming His mercy, catch I said delighting in and proclaiming His mercy, then our desire for the glory of God is weak at best and not in tune with God's heartbeat for the nations. We go proclaiming something very specific. And that is the glory of God, or worshiping the glory of God for His mercy. His mercy in what? In sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to reconcile us sinful enemies of God back to Him. That's what we go proclaim. I want you to think about this as you leave this place today. Your concern for God being glorified among the nations will be displayed tonight and tomorrow. Your concern for the glory of God as it is worshipped among the nations will be displayed for what it is tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and so on. 
If you're concerned about the glory of God, then you will proclaim it like you're concerned about it tonight and tomorrow and every day following. Your reveling in the mercy of God will be displayed tomorrow for what it is. Do you revel in the mercy of God? Do you think often that the mercy of God that He has, dis- that he has displayed, that He has given to you, do you revel in that? Do you just thrive in that? Do you think on those things? We just talked about in Colossians chapter 3 to put our mind, fix our minds on the things that are above. One of the things that is above is the mercy of God displayed in Jesus on the cross and appropriated in our lives. Do you think on those things? If you do, share those things. But your reveling in the mercy of God will be displayed today and tomorrow for what it is question, do you have a concern for the nations to glorify God? This is your neighbor. This is your co-worker. This is the Haitian. Do you have a desire for the nations to experience the same mercy that you have? And if you understand that mercy that you've been shown, you will want them to experience that mercy. I mean, if we just get practical here. What about the mercy in forgiving us for some of the sins that some of us have struggled with in the past? Or the sins that we even currently struggle with, but we know that God's mercy still covers that in the cross. Why would we not want someone to experience the same thing? And I think for some of us, because we don't experience that ourselves. We live still in that. We still live in that lack of experiencing that mercy that He has forgiven us. He has paid the price for us. But some of us still live in that guilt and shame instead of living in that freedom of that forgiveness. So if we experience it, why would we not want to share that? Last thought. Your actions show where your heart is. Some of us need to repent because our hearts and minds are not concerned with the nations glorifying God for His mercy. And I know that's a, a negative tone for us to end on today, but really, I want you to leave this place with a burdened heart of God's glory being worshipped among the nations. I want you to leave this place praying this week that as we leave on Saturday, that God would be worshipped in a way that He's never been worshipped before. That He'd be worshipped among a people that has never worshipped Him before. And that we who are going and who are not going, both this week, would understand more fully the mercy of God in our lives so that we can share that with those around us who need to hear it. Who are dying, going to hell, because they have not experienced the mercy of God. This week, go buy someone a coffee and tell them what God has done for their lives. Like, carve out time for you and your spouse to spend time with that lost neighbor or lost couple at work. You may not unload the whole Jesus thing on them the first night you meet with them, all right? But that's your goal, right? That's where we're working towards. God is still in the business of changing lives, right? You know that, right? Everybody here? Yeah. All right. 
he, he still changes people's lives. Okay? He does. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, you're gracious and good, loving and caring. Father, you're thoughtful. You are magnificent. Father, you are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. Father, you are self-sufficient. Father, you are totally happy within the Trinity. You do not need us to worship you, to make yourself feel better. Father, it is the most perfect display of selfless love in sending your Son Christ to die on the cross for us. Let us see that for what it is. Let us see that the price you paid on the cross was selfless, that it was grand, that it was infinite, because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And Father, let us revel in the fact that your mercy is great. Father, some of us still live as if our past sins have not been forgiven and the sins we committed yesterday have not been forgiven. Father, help us to live knowing that it's been paid for, that we have experienced that mercy. And Father, do that in our lives so that we have something to share. Show us the mercy. Let us revel in your mercy. And let us proclaim that to a world that needs to hear it. Father, um, as we prepare this week to go out of the country, Father, I pray that your will would be done among all else. That your name would be glorified. Father, that you would use us in ways that we could not do ourselves so that we cannot take any credit. Father, we want to see your name lifted high. We go because worship does not exist. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys dismiss. Have a great day.